0: And we're in Revelation chapter 6, looking at verses 12 through 17, where we see now God's answer to the prayers of the saints who were under the altar, that God would enact judgment upon the earth, that he would destroy the world, that he would judge the nations, and that he would bring the age to a final conclusion. Revelation chapter 6 beginning in verse 12. And he writes, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Let's ask that the Lord would bless the preaching of his word this evening. Our Father in heaven, our eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. Deal with your servants according to your loving kindness, and teach to us your statutes. Father, we pray that you would give us understanding, that you would give us insight, that you would fill us with the kind of hopeful anticipation that we need as we live in this fallen world and we await the great day when Christ returns. Let us remember, Father, that this day may be a day of terror for the earth, but a day of great glory and celebration and praise for those who are found in Christ. So help us in this way, in Jesus' name, amen. When we study the book of Revelation, we identify the cycles of history that are found throughout the book, really by the observance of the final judgment that is seen in these cycles. We find it repeated over and over again, where God comes, and destroys the earth, and finally when we get to the end of the book, we see much more about that last day with the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. And so as you read through the book of Revelation, if you begin in chapter 1 and read all the way through chapter uh, to chapter 21 to the end of the book, and you read it as if you're trying to read a linear history, in other words, it starts here and ends here, you're going to run into some major, major problems. The biggest one will be the earth gets destroyed seven different times. And so by the time you get to the first destruction of the earth, you're going to wonder how in the world did the earth get destroyed yet again and again and again. And so this is how we understand the book is that we have seven cycles of history that are repeated over and over again. And so now we're really seeing in the second cycle the the true destruction of the earth The judgment of God, the return of Christ, and um, it's helping us to read within those seven cycles of history different facets of the same events. And one of the prominent facets that we're going to read that becomes more and more clear and we get more and more information as we move through the cycles is this final day of judgment. The great day of God's wrath, as John puts it. Now, In 1980, in the month of May, geologists were noticing that there were signs that Mount St. Helens was going to erupt. There was a man by the name of Harry Truman. He was named after the 33rd president. And he was the caretaker of a lodge on Spirit Lake. And uh, you you can still watch the YouTube videos of him on the news. So he's just a few miles from this mountain. And he wasn't ignorant about the warnings. In fact, he heard them over the radio. Uh, he watched them on TV. The police came out to speak to him when the, the officials were telling everyone to evacuate the area. And he decided he would refuse to leave. He would stay there. He even went on television. These are the videos you can watch. And he's laughing about the prediction that this mountain's going to blow up. And he had contempt for the geologists and, and, and what they were telling him to do. And then on May 18th, at about 8.30 in the morning, the mountain erupts. And everything within 150 square miles was completely flattened. And the volcano destroys everything in that blast zone. And they never found any sign of Harry Truman. He was completely obliterated. He was destroyed in an event that he was warned about prior to it happening. But instead of heeding the warning, Harry Truman foolishly decided to stay. He put up his nose, as it were, at the thought that something this catastrophic could actually take place and happen. And that's often how people respond when we talk about the final judgment. Come on, you really think God's going to come back one day and just destroy everything? This response to the warning of cataclysmic judgment that God says, I promise you this is going to happen at the return of Christ. And when we read about this sixth seal being broken, that's what we're reading. The introduction of the judgment day. It describes the one great catastrophe at the end of the age. And what we're meant to pick up from this is the dread and the terror and the awe and even the consternation of the day that's pictured under this two-fold symbolism of a crashing universe and a thoroughly frightened human race. Everyone is terrified. Everyone's running and fleeing. And there's nowhere for them to hide. There's nothing for them to do. The outcome of the persecution of the church That we saw last time in the previous passage. Is that Jesus will come back. Jesus is going to come back. And if evil continues to progress. And the wicked just prosper forever. And there is no return of Jesus. To bring all things together. And to set all things right. Then the Christian faith is useless. There's no point in it at all. If Jesus isn't coming back. And there's not a judgment day. There's no point in doing what we're doing. So when Jesus opens the sixth seal, we get the answer. There is a coming day of judgment. And on that day of judgment, God will right all of the wrongs. He will destroy the earth, and he will destroy everyone who is not found in Jesus Christ. It will be the single most terrifying day in the history of the world, but only for those who are not found in Jesus Christ. So because the day is coming, and because we've been warned that it's coming, there's something here for us, right? We need to be sure that we're found in Jesus Christ. We need to be certain that we have faith in him, and faith alone is what we're uh, resting upon in Christ for our salvation. And then we also need to be sure of something else, that this day of wrath that we affirm to be true, that there is a judgment we realize this isn't meant for believers. God is not coming back to judge Christians. Our judgment has already taken place, and it took place on the cross when Jesus paid for all of our sins. And then further, as we understand that this judgment isn't meant for us, we also don't give in to the world. We don't give up in this life. And also, we don't live for this present evil age, but we live for the world that is to come because we realize this world's passing away like a vapor. In a a moment, it will be gone. And so a couple of questions, I think, that will help us as we look at this passage. The first one is, are these literal descriptions of judgment? Secondly, what event is being described here? And then thirdly, how should we respond? What is this knowledge good for? In other words, who cares? Who cares if God's coming back to judge the world? Now, to answer those questions, we're going to look at three points in the text. I'll give you some brief answers now. Are these literal descriptions of judgment? Well, I think in a sense they are. They're symbolically literal, if that makes sense. These are actually going to happen. They're given to us in symbolism, but this is going to happen. And so the first point will be just that, the nature of the sixth seal. Secondly, what event's being described here? And it's the coming judgment of God. And so what we'll see then is the next two points. We have the sixth seal. We have six objects of creation that are mentioned in the text. And then we have six classes of people and their cry of despair. It's kind of interesting, and a lot of commentators make a big deal out of it. But in this final judgment here, we have this idea of 666. And in Revelation 13, uh, verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. There's debate there. It could be 616. But I just thought it was an interesting way to divide the sermon. So, um, as we look at this, several commentators and theologians believe that as we read about these events and the seven cycles and the, the different descriptions of judgment, that these aren't really talking about the final judgment. These are actually symbolic of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and that we shouldn't really expect anything like this to happen in the future, and that the language may sound cataclysmic, but really it's just symbolic, and it's talking about a past event, not a future event. And so in order to just kind of show you where I'm coming from and saying, yes, this is a future event and this is going to take place in a more literal sense than uh, simply just saying it's symbolic of a past event. I want to just browse through a few passages with you that describe this final day in terms that I think are undeniable that this is the last day and a last judgment and not merely just something that happened In 70 AD. If you look at Isaiah chapter 24 in the first six verses, Isaiah 24, the prophet writes this Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress. The buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. In other words, he's saying everybody's on the same page. He goes on in verse 3, The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. You see also in Isaiah chapter 34, in verses 2 through 4, Because there in 24, you might make the case that he's just speaking about the nation of Israel, and that would make good sense in applying these events to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But I don't think you get to do that in 34, 2 through 4, where he begins For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them, he has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out, and their corpses will give off their stench. And the mountains will be drenched with their blood, and all the hosts of heaven will wear away. And now you get where John's getting this language. And the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. Now as you think about that and you turn back to the New Testament... And go to Matthew chapter 24, and you begin to see Jesus' own description of this coming destruction. Matthew 24, and beginning in verse 29. Now, previous to this, in verses 15 through 28, he's talked about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's talked about what's coming in 70 A.D. In verse 29, he says, After the tribulation of those days... The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And just one last passage here to try to put that all into perspective from 2 Peter in chapter 3. 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 3. Peter says, Know this first of all, That in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You can almost hear people saying that today, can't we? What in the world are you talking about? Everything's gone on just the same as it's always gone on. There's actually a philosophical idea, uniformitarianism, that says that yeah, because things have always gone the same, we can't expect any changes. It's just going to keep going. But in verse 5, he goes on, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved For fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and all of its works will be burnt up. So this kind of language is used, uh, you know, this is all throughout the Old Testament, but we find it really informing what's happening in the book of the Revelation. It's depicting the final judgment of all mankind. George Eldon Ladd said this, The language is not merely poetical or symbolic of spiritual realities, but describes a real cosmic catastrophe whose actual character we cannot conceive. I mean, try to imagine this description as we go through it, and it's very difficult to conceive what's happening. Look at verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon... Became like blood. And so the first object of creation that we see here is the earth itself. We see a massive earthquake. It's an earthquake that is set apart from all the other major earthquakes that we've experienced in the present evil age. The great earthquake begins when the last martyr dies, is what we see from verse 11. And there was given to each of them a white robe. They were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. And then you move directly into the text, and so the expectation is the last Christian martyr has died. The earth rebels against the depraved humanity. In Matthew 24, in verse 7, Jesus says, "...in various places there will be earthquakes." and famines, and all of these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But this great earthquake, this is the final push that ushers in the day of judgment. It ushers in the day of the Lord. And notice there what happens to the sun. So we see the next object of creation. The sun becomes black as sackcloth made of hair. And the idea, I think, that's taking place here is that this earthquake is so severe. Later we'll see that the the mountains are moved and the valleys are taken away. It's so severe that as it sends up dust and lava and volcanic ash, it creates this cloud that blackens the sun. And you can't even look up and see it shining in any sort of color other than blackness. Chilton said, "...just as the salvation of God's people is spoken of in terms of creation." So, God's judgments are spoken in terms of decreation, the collapse of the universe, God ripping apart and dissolving the fabric of creation. And so the earth shakes, the sun is black, and then thirdly, we see the moon becomes like blood. Now, this is interesting because all summer long, as we've had our fires for I don't know how many years now, and you go outside when the moon's up and shining well. And you can see, you know, it's very quite red. It's kind of got that pinkish glow to it. And, you know, it's the smoke from the fires. And, in fact, I just watched a video of the fires there in California. And the smoke was so thick you couldn't see across the street. And the guy was filming the moon, and it was deep blood red in the midst of that smoke. And this is the idea that we're seeing portrayed here. Cataclysmic destruction. But not isolated to one little forest fire. But throughout the whole earth. The whole earth is so covered in smoke. And flame and dust and destruction. That everyone who looks up at the moon. Is seeing a blood red moon. Everyone who looks up to the sun. Is seeing it black as sackcloth. I mean this is, this is incredible. Imagine this worldwide earthquake, volcanic eruptions, fires, devastation, the sun blackened by dust and smoke, the moon red as blood. Hendrickson says what we have here is a picture of the terror of the judgment day. The symbol taken as a whole teaches us just one lesson, namely, that the final and complete effusion of God's wrath upon a world that has persecuted the church will be terrible indeed. It will be terrible. Look at the fourth object of creation in verse 13. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts off its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. You know, Luke twenty-one eleven. Uh, says that there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. All the stars of the sky—likely what we're, he's referring to as meteors—all um, the meteors are going to fall to the earth. This is something interesting too, because as I think about the judgment day, I—I'm I, trying to analyze it, and I go, "Well, what about astronauts? What happens to those guys who are like hanging out in the space station? They're watching. Do they just like eventually die up there somehow?" And But what we see throughout this is not just Earth is destroyed, but the heavens. It's the entire universe is, is ripped apart and decreed. It doesn't matter where you are. You could be on Mars. You're not safe. Everything gets destroyed. And so this idea of the falling stars, this means only one thing to the ancients, as they would read this. The end has come. The whole universe is unfolding. It's falling apart. And so this idea is being stressed about the terror of the day. The the horrendous disillusion of the earth and the sky all add to the terror of the coming judgment. I mean, this is, you you really start trying to wrap your mind around this. And they couldn't produce a Hollywood movie that anyone would watch. It would really portray this well. I mean, imagine the stars just ripping apart, the sky tearing apart, the sun going to pieces. On top of that, the earth is shaking. You've got volcanic eruptions. Everything's just going into chaos. And so we see this in verse 14. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And this is the destruction of, Of the whole world. The Lamb has come to judge the nations. Revelation 20, in verse 11, he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. When the Lamb comes, the earth and heaven can't take it, they can't tolerate it. Even the physical elements of the creation are dissolved. In 21 verse 1 he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. The earth disassembles, and God's the one disassembling it. Mountains are flattened. Valleys are are raised up, I suppose. Islands completely disappear. So you could say, no more Mount Everest. No more Rocky Mountain Range. No more Hawaiian Islands. These geographical uh, landmarks that have stood for thousands and thousands of years, all of them worldwide tumble in a moment. They're all taken away. The earth unravels and separates and falls into total, utter chaos. And the former things pass away in order to make room for a new and a glorious earth that is worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is what you want to think about here. What's the purpose of this? I mean, why is he telling us all these things? Because our tendency, my tendency and your tendency, is to put our hope and our investment in a world that in a moment is going to pass away. Because the earth is to be destroyed... And because God himself will do it in an act of judgment, we have to strive to not live for this world that will pass away. We have to strive to live for the world that is to come. When, when you're living for the things of this present evil age, it is the definition of folly because you can't keep any of it. You're either going to die and it's going to go to some other fool and who knows what he's going to do with it. Or God's going to come back and just rip it all to pieces anyways. There's one thing that will last into eternity, and that's the kingdom of God. And so we ought to be about that business. World's passing. And so often we're desperately trying to cling to it and grab as much of it as we can and get as much satisfaction out of it as we can. And Jesus tells us, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. If you're living for the things of this world, and that's where your heart is, the idea is when God comes in judgment, you're going to go with the world. Be disassembled. Taken apart. And so the question is, what are we living for? You know, this was a a question that hit me, I mean, like a ton of bricks. It, It flattened me and changed my life completely. When years ago... Uh, My whole life revolved around collecting trophy animals, and my business was ran for that. That's what I did. As my wife can attest, you wouldn't see me for six months out of the year because I'd be at every location I could find uh, an animal to shoot that I could stuff and put on my wall. And then when I got converted, I began thinking about my big wall full of trophies, and I thought, what am I going to do with these when Jesus comes back? Hey, Jesus. Jesus. Check out my mule deer. What do you think about those guys, huh? I mean, do you see the folly of that? Suddenly I I realized everything I had been living for, everything I had existed, not only was it folly even in in a temporal sense, but it was definitely folly in the eternal sense. All the kingdoms that we build I don't care what it is. If it's the kingdom of your trophy room, the, the kingdom of sports, the kingdom of your job, the kingdom of your garage, whatever you want you want to mark as your kingdom. All of those things can turn into an idol that is absolute folly, where we give all of our lives to something that will pass away, something we can't keep. It's interesting as, as we think about this, um, if you go to Matthew 25, Matthew 25 and beginning. Let me get there. I know it's in chapter 25. In verse 14, you have this parable of the talents. And the parable of the talents is something that I think we ought to be reflecting on this as we live our lives. What are we doing with the things that God has given to us? Notice it. Verse 14, Matthew 25. It's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the masters of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought him five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. His master said, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But His master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to every one who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave, into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, if we believe that, if we believe what's being given to us in that parable, and we believe, yes, this world will pass away and the eternal kingdom is the only thing that will last, this should greatly affect our lives. I mean, this should change everything that we do, all of our ambitions, what we're living for, what we're dying for, even. Remember in 1 Peter, or 2 Peter, I just read it, in verse 10, he says, Day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. This is what's going to happen, Peter says. And then in verse 11, he says this, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, so because this is going to happen, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt With intense heat. So there's questions that are posed here as we read this. Are are we striving for holiness? Are we living to be obedient to God for the glory of his name? Are we motivated to do this by gratitude and love for God because of that which he's done for us? Do we live in sacrifice, and I mean really sacrifice for the kingdom of heaven? Are, are we serving the church for the best good of god 's people and the glory of god i you know I often think what would happen if we began dissecting our time and really studying where our efforts go if we If we looked at what we did with our time, what we did with our money we just look at your Facebook page, I guess and we 'll know everything but um When we do this and we see the last day prophesied, it asks all of us, where's your treasure? Where's your treasure? What are you living for? What are you doing? Because if you're living for the things of this world, then you've missed the boat. And that's the point of the the Bible telling us about this final day over and over and over again. Don't live for things that are going to pass away. This life's a vapor. It's going to be miserable and tough. You're in the wilderness here. Live for something better. That's a lot what we were preaching about this morning. The whole idea of, of the promise of something better. That's what we're looking for. One of the toughest parts, I think, about living in the present evil age and sacrificing for the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom consummate is that when we look at those who are living for themselves and we covet what they have and we covet what they do and we say to ourselves, is there really any reward for us I mean everybody else is living it up and here I am you know giving away my tithe every month to the church I could have bought a you know a new hot rod car or whatever it may be what's the point of all this and you know what's great is the Bible always addresses these questions Like down in the nitty-gritty. Look at Psalm chapter 73. It's literally me and you saying this. What's the point? What's the point of all of this? Psalm 73 says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. As I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them, and they say, "How does God know? And is there is there knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely, this is what he says, "Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. And washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. It drives me crazy. I mean, crazy. When I go by all these big buildings with their big parking lots, especially when I have to go by them on Sunday morning, knowing they have no right to call themselves a church knowing that their budgets are 15 to 20 times bigger than ours. And then I see faithful churches struggle just to keep the doors open and the lights on. And I say, why, God? Why? Why does it always have to be so weak? Why does it always have to be the church, the purer it gets, the weaker it gets by worldly standards? And in those times when, I, when I'm thinking this, why are they prospering? What's the point? That's why I have to go back to Psalm 73. And you go to verse 15, and we're looking at the end. If I had spe- said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came to the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused. You will despise their form. Notice this in Revelation 6 verses 15. As we... We move from the objects of creation now to the six classes of men and the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains. The whole world and everyone in it is reduced to terror And they run, and they flee, and they hide in the rubble of a world that has just been torn to pieces in a moment. And we see it's people from all the earth, people from every class. As G.K. Beale says, God is no respecter of persons, but judges all men on an equal basis, regardless of their social, political, or economic standing. They're all as one. Kings are hiding in caves with their slaves, and none of them, none of them have anything left. It's all been taken away from them in a moment. Uh, James Boyce wrote, When disaster strikes a country, dictators will have deposited fortunes in Swiss bank accounts. Generals will have planes waiting to whisk them to a safe haven in South America. Even common people will have ways of avoiding disaster. But not when God comes to execute his judgments. There's no place to hide. And no person has anything with which they can hide from the judgment of God. And so when this day comes, all the men and women that we used to look at and say, God, why, why, are, they, why are they fat with resources? Why do they have everything? And we just seem to have nothing all the time. And we'll look at them, and together, they're hiding in terror in the rubble of a ruined world to no avail because you can't hide from God. I mean, today, as we walk out of this building, it's going to look, as you look at the world, you're going to say, sin obviously pays. Greed and lust obviously pay. But when we look at the, le- uh, the world through the lens of the last day, we see that it doesn't. We see that it doesn't. This um, this world is just full of hardship. It's full of opposition. It's full of difficulties. But what, what John's writing to the churches here is that we would not give in to the world, that we wouldn't give in to its lusts, that we wouldn't jump on the bandwagon with everyone else, but also that we wouldn't give up on the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is going to be glorious beyond anything comparable in this world. So we persevere in faith. We, we persevere in prayer. We persevere in service. We persevere in preaching the gospel to every single creature. And we live for the glory of God, knowing what is to come. Now notice finally their cry of despair. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Isn't that great? The wrath of the lamb. If you've ever ever been around a lamb, nobody's scared of a lamb. And yet here comes this lamb and terror fills the hearts of every soul. And they cower under their rubble and they cry out to mountains, fall down, bury us, let us die so that we don't have to face the wrath of the Lamb. You know, I've said this before, there's no such thing as an atheist. I don't believe in atheists because the Bible teaches us that we all know there's a God. And that the knowledge of God is put into our hearts and that you can only deceive yourself into thinking that there isn't a God in an attempt to stop considering the terror of the judgment that you have to face before God for sin. They beg mountains. They beg the rubble to fall on them, crush us, because they hope that in death they can escape the presence of the God that they are terrified of. But even in death, God's there. Even in death, the Lamb is there. The smoke of their torment rises up into the nostrils of the Lamb. So pouring out indescribable wrath on those who rejected Christ's salvation is the only place that they have to go. This is what verse 17 says, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The question is, who indeed? Who can stand up to this? Look at chapter 7 and verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Notice what they're doing. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This wrath isn't for us. We we stand before God, confident in Christ, in our white robes, holding our palm branches, singing out to our God his praises. It's not for us. So when that day comes and Jesus meets us in the air and he takes us up with him and then he destroys the earth, Where were we when all this happened? Well, we were in the air with Jesus. And when the earth is all destroyed and it's all finished, he takes us right back down to the earth, and there the judgment begins. And we're found standing before the throne and the Lamb. That's the sixth seal. Six objects of creation and the six classes of mankind. And so for the church of Christ, it's not a day of terror. It's a glorious day where we see our Savior face to face where we become like him because we see him as he is. And for the unbeliever, it's a day of terror. It's a day of misery, and it leads to an eternity in hell, bearing the wrath of God. And it signals everyone that this world will not last. This isn't your hope. And the opportunity for salvation is limited. And one day, those apart from Christ will be exposed to the hot fury of divine judgment. And there's no escape. That gentle lamb, that gentle lamb who was slain on a tree, is now in an exalted position over the whole world. And he's pouring out divine wrath. But he's also loving his people. He's redeeming his people and glorifying his people. So because this day's coming... We've all been warned. We need to be sure that we're found in Christ. And that if we're in Christ, we know that the day is a day of glory. Because it's the day we're finally with him. So we don't give in to the world. We don't give up on the kingdom. We don't live for this world. But we live with all of our might for the world that is to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for uncomfortable passages that tell us of things that will come so that we would be shaken in the midst of our complacency in this present evil age. I pray that your word would work in our hearts and minds as we go out throughout the week and we try to function and live in this world, that we would keep our focus on your glory, on your kingdom, and on your will. May it be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.